What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and this is the Messed Up Origins Podcast, the show where I share the disturbing original stories that your favorite movies, shows, books, and video games are based on. The time has come for us to discuss another Tim Burton film, because you know me, I just can't get enough stop-motion gothic puppets. The movie going under the microscope today is his 2005 award-winning Corpse Bride, starring Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter, aka the only two actors that Tim Burton knows exist. I've been getting a ton of requests to talk about this lately, and I believe it's because of a TikTok that went viral last month where some girl claims that Burton based the movie on an old Jewish folktale. Well, the Messed Up Origins team and I have looked into it, and it turns out she's right. Sort of. Burton has openly stated that he took inspiration from a Jewish folktale that fellow animator, the late Joe Raft, introduced him to, but it's actually not the one that she discusses in the TikTok. The story she tells is called The Demon in the Tree, but the story Burton cites is called The Finger. Funnily enough, both can be found in the same collection called Lilith's Cave, Jewish Tales of the Supernatural, not even 60 pages apart from each other. Now, I'm not claiming Burton was lying about where he got his inspiration from or about how much of Corpse Bride's plot is original versus taken from old folktales, but I do find it interesting how the movie has so much in common with both stories. That's why today I'm going to break down both of these stories for you, pointing out every instance of overlap that I can find, as well as some theories on what may have inspired their creation. So, without further ado, the very messed up origins of Corpse Bride. Chapter 1. The Finger. So let's start with a little refresher for those who haven't seen Corpse Bride in a while, or have never seen it. The movie takes place in a fictional village in Victorian England, and opens by introducing us to some of the sexiest puppets I've ever seen, Mr. and Mrs. Everglot. The Everglots used to be a wealthy family, but they squandered their fortune in recent years, and have arranged for their daughter, Victoria, to marry Victor Van Dort. Victor is the son of newly wealthy fish merchants who are still at the bottom of the social hierarchy despite their fortune. They agreed to wed him to Victoria so they can raise their social class, and the Everglots agree to it so they can replenish their riches. The good news is that Victor and Victoria actually like each other. The bad news is Victor completely butchers the wedding rehearsal, even setting his future chin-in-law, I mean mother-in-law, on fire, and he flees into the woods out of embarrassment. While in hiding, he practices his vows with a tree and puts his wedding ring on an upturned root. Only he soon finds out that root was actually the finger of a dead woman named Emily, who now believes herself to be his wife. If only he said, till death do us part. That could have been his loophole. Now the story that Burton cited as his inspiration, The Finger, starts out a little different, but the overlap is immediately obvious. It opens with three young men walking through the forest around the city of Safed, found in Israel. Two of the friends were making fun of the third, the oldest of them named Reuven, because he was getting married the next day, but Reuven didn't really mind. He actually considered himself lucky because his bride-to-be, Shira, was an absolute dime piece and their respective families were the richest in the city. So similar to the movie, you have this underlying theme of aristocratic families arranging their children to be married and the children actually being happy with the arrangement. Only in this case, no one has blown their entire fortune on chin enhancements. While hanging out by the river, one of Reuben's friends points out a root-like object protruding from the ground, and upon closer inspection, they realize it's a finger. Reuben, feeling slap-happy and wanting to make his friends laugh, takes out his wedding ring, slides it on the finger, and says his wedding vows three times, promising to love the finger forever. He looks over at his friends, who are rolling on the floor laughing at this point, raffling, if you will, and feels pretty good about himself. Then he looks back at the finger and sees it start to move. Suddenly, it's not just a finger coming out of the dirt. It's a hand, then an arm, 
and before he can even process what's happening, Reuven is face to face with the corpse of a woman in a tattered old dress standing upright with her arms outstretched. To make it even worse, she's screaming, my husband, my husband, it's so good to see you. And Reuven, who may have stained his trousers at this point, turns in the opposite direction and runs back home with his friends. Unfortunately, in the film, Victor didn't get away so easily. He gets cornered by his betrothed and dragged down to the land of the dead. The next morning, Reuven meets up with his friends to make sure they keep quiet about the night before, and they, somewhat ironically, swear to take the secret to their graves. They gather that afternoon for Reuven's real wedding, and his wife's family estate is crawling with guests who want to see the two richest families in town unite to become one. But similar to how in the movie, when Victor and Victoria's first kiss gets interrupted by Emily, this wedding doesn't exactly go according to plan. The wedding guests get settled in their seats, and the rabbi clears his throat to start the ceremony, but just before he can get a word out, a blood-curdling shriek is heard from the back of the room. Standing near the entrance was a decrepit, rotting corpse in a torn-up dress with an eyeball hanging out of its socket. And every single one of the wedding guests, along with the bride herself, ran out the door in fear, so that the only living people in that room were Reuven and the rabbi. The rabbi, who never lost his composure for a moment, called out to the dead woman, demanding to know why she left her resting place to disturb this union. She replied that Reuven was bound to her, and then she demanded to know why he was trying to marry another. At this point, the rabbi turns to Reuven, who tells him the whole story, and admits that he did indeed say his sacred vows three times in front of two witnesses. This interaction where Reuven is coming clean with the rabbi reminds me of the part in the movie where Victoria seeks out the pastor so he can help Victor. She tells him everything she knows about the situation, and the pastor pretends that he might have a solution, only to drag her back to her parents and claim that she's gone insane. Now, the rabbi doesn't do anything that cruel, but he's not exactly happy with Reuven either. After hearing the full story, he lets out an oy vey, gives him a look like he wants to kick him in his tuchus, and says they have to put a pause on this so the court of rabbis could assemble and decide how to proceed. A few days later, the trial commences, and the corpse bride is called in to give her testimony of the events, which matches Reuven's account perfectly. A major difference, though, is that she closes her statement by saying their marriage needs to not only be recognized, but consummated. And actually, a weird amount of emphasis is placed on this consummation detail. The bride says she was never married in life and therefore denied her hour of pleasure, so her groom must give her what she's owed. To which Reuven replied, I can give you seven minutes. Next, the fathers of Reuven and Shira take the stand and swear their children were promised to each other before they were even born. After all the witnesses speak, the rabbis go to their private quarters to make their decision, and while they're gone, the zombie bride continuously bats her lashes and flashes her rotting yellow teeth at Reuven, who now has the added fear of having to share a bed with that thing. When the rabbis return, the room goes silent. The bride stands up straight, barely able to contain her excitement, while Reuven is so nervous that he's on the verge of collapsing. The rabbis start by saying that Reuven did indeed vow to spend the rest of his life with this corpse and even conducted the sacred ritual as required. However, there are other factors to consider. For one, he was already promised to somebody else long before he married the corpse, and the old agreement would have to be dissolved by those who made it for this new one to take effect. Secondly, the legality for a marriage between the living and dead has never been discussed, so therefore it can't be legitimate. And the third point, the one that I find most important, it was a joke. His vows were not meant to be taken seriously, and it's the dead wife's own fault for not realizing that. After hearing this horrible verdict, the bride lets out an ear-shattering and pitiful shriek that pierced the souls of all in 
attendants and filled their hearts with fear. But then she fell to the floor and embraced death once more. The rabbi then ordered for her remains to be reburied and buried deep so nothing like this would ever happen again. Then Reuven and Shira said their vows and lived happily ever after. So what you just heard was The Finger, a story from 17th century Russia that was collected by folklorist Howard Schwartz for his aforementioned book about Jewish folktales, Lilith's Cave. His resource was the 17th century Hebrew book Shiva Ha'ari, which contained tales about a rabbi named Lorius' supposed adventures, and this story about the finger was one of them. However, the other story contained in his collection, The Demon in the Tree, comes from Germany and has its own set of haunting similarities with Corpse Bride. Chapter 2 The Demon in the Tree there are stories of this tale type found in several different languages, including Persian and Arabic, but the Hebrew variant, which is what the version I'm going to be sharing descended from, was traced to the 10th century and is the oldest that we've discovered. The demon in the tree starts out similar to the finger. A rabbi's son is in the woods playing hide and seek with a friend when he notices a finger sticking out of a hollow tree trunk. Thinking it's his friend, he decides to play a joke with him by putting his ring on his finger and saying the wedding vows, but when he finished, the person who emerged from the tree was neither laughing nor his friend. What he saw climbing out of that trunk was an evil-looking woman with long black hair who was smiling with her whole face, and the rabbi's son, who I'll call Ari, ran home as fast as he could and didn't tell another soul what happened, just like Reuven and his friends did. About a decade after this happened, Ari, who's now a man, got married and took his wife to their new home. Only soon after they got there, she stepped out to explore the property, was hit in the face with a tree branch, and killed. A year later, when the time of mourning had passed, Ari got married a second time and the same exact thing happened. His second bride was killed by a tree branch and suddenly everyone in town was very suspicious of him. Just like how the villagers in the movie started to suspect Victor when word got around that he was seen with another woman. Well, at this point, Ari started to feel that he was cursed and the fathers of the town's desirable maidens wouldn't risk letting their daughters marry him. So his next bride came from an extremely poor family that couldn't even afford a dowry just like Victoria's. This girl was a hard worker though, and street smart, something his previous wives were not. On her first night exploring the property, she actually noticed the tree branch being pulled back to whack her in the face. So she ducked under it. When she looked up again, she saw a woman with long black hair running away into the darkness of the woods. Obviously, she had to tell Ari what happened, and suddenly he remembered that stupid joke he accidentally played on the demon when he was a kid and told his wife all about it. After realizing that she-demon was the one who killed his last two wives, he wanted to retaliate with violence by burning down the tree she lived in. But his clever wife pointed out that if he destroys her home, she'll just do the same to them and proposed a different plan. As the saying goes, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Only in this case, replace honey with jam, vinegar with fire, and flies with devil woman. To appease the demon, they spread some jam on a plate and left it outside her tree. Then when they checked back the next morning, the jam had been replaced by a gold coin and the couple knew this was a step in the right direction. They kept this arrangement going for a few months, but eventually Ari's wife got pregnant, which the demon wasn't going to be happy about. See, the wife knew that the demon was a daughter of Lilith, Adam's first wife, who, according to Judaism, became a demon known for hurting and killing children. So Ari's wife went into the woods, walked right up to the demon's tree and struck up a deal. She said, I know you think that Ari should be your husband, but we're starting a family and I don't want you to hurt our kids. So how would you feel if he agreed to spend an hour with you every night at sunset. 
Now the demon probably could have negotiated for better terms like two hours a night plus one dinner date every other week, but I guess she never expected a deal like this to happen because she enthusiastically agreed to the wife's proposition. Then from that point onward, it became routine for Ari to spend one hour a day as a slave to the demon as the story puts it. But in exchange, not only did she not hurt his family, she may have even protected them. About seven years into this arrangement is when something incredible happened though. Ari was going to the demon's place to spend his evening feeding her grapes and brushing her hair like he always did when he found the ring he had given her on that fateful night 17 years ago, sitting on a plate right outside her tree. He knew in his heart this was a sign from the demon that she was going to leave them alone for good and he was right. Ari, his wife, and their many children lived happily ever after and never saw her again. So tell me, does anyone else find that ending to be oddly similar to the ending of Corpse Bride when at the very last minute, Emily stops Victor from poisoning himself and decides to let him live his life with Victoria before ultimately dissolving into a kaleidoscope of butterflies? It sounds to me that just like Emily, the she-demon eventually realized that her latching onto Ari didn't really do anything for her and deprived his wife and children of his presence for an hour every night. And maybe it'd be best for everyone involved if she just let him go and found a new boo. Granted, I've never heard of demons being that self-aware and willing to embrace change, but I've also never heard of demons being obsessed with jam, so anything's possible. Chapter three, what does it mean? One of my favorite parts of dissecting old folk tales is trying to figure out why they were written, besides for entertainment, of course. What moral or lesson was the storyteller trying to communicate to his audience? Sometimes it's really simple. Goldilocks should have respected her neighbor's property, the hare shouldn't have underestimated his opponent, and the fisherman's wife should have been grateful for what she had instead of resentful over what she didn't. But what about the finger and the demon in the tree? What lesson could stories about accidentally marrying dead women and demons possibly teach? Well, one of the most important elements of the story that we have to consider is that it comes from Judaism. I've seen some theories on various message boards and blogs that this frightening tale about a Jewish bride-to-be who was killed is based on the tragic pogroms that took place in the Russian Empire. Pogroms were large-scale targeted attacks that led to thousands of Jews being mercilessly slaughtered in the streets of Russia by Christians and atheists who held them responsible for all of their problems. Allegedly, wedding parties were a favorite target among the pogrom participants, and as the brides were responsible for creating the next generation of Jews, they were almost always killed first and in the most horrific ways. The problem I have with that theory, at least when it comes to the folktale, is that the earliest version of the finger has been traced to the 1600s, so it's definitely older than that, and the pogroms took place almost 200 years later in the 1800s. I guess you could argue that Jews have been persecuted throughout history, so maybe there was an earlier event that inspired it, but I've only seen people point to the pogroms as an explanation. I've also seen claims that Tim Burton used the history of pogroms as a backdrop to Corpse Bride and simply moved the setting from Russia to England but I'm not sure if I believe that either, considering how similar it is to the folktale. Like the whole plot of the movie is right there in the original story, so I don't see why pogroms would have anything to do with it, especially considering that Emily's murder was solely motivated by greed as opposed to prejudice or even revenge. Personally, I don't think that either folktale is connected to actual historical events. After learning firsthand how many nursery rhymes have been falsely attributed to massacres, plagues, and other tragedies, I can't help being skeptical of claims like that. The 
The good news is I have a theory of my own. These stories were told to emphasize the sanctity of wedding vows and the importance of following burial customs. The reason I say this is because folktales and myths have always been used to legitimize cultural practices. For example, in the Odyssey, one of Odysseus's soldiers named Lepnor falls off a roof while drunk and dies alone without being cremated or buried. And when Odysseus arrives in the underworld, the first shade he meets is none other than Alepnor, who begs him to go back to Circe's island and lay his body to rest. Odysseus, a true Greek who understands the importance of a proper burial, does as his comrade says and buries his body along with his armor and marks the spot with an oar. I mean, think about it. In the finger, the entire conflict could have been avoided if whoever buried the corpse bride did it properly and not so near the surface, or if the main character didn't treat his wedding vows as a joke. Not to mention the rabbi, who is no doubt going to be portrayed as the wisest character in a Jewish story, put special emphasis on both. When collecting Reuven's testimony, he even asks about specific steps. Did you say your vows three times? Did you have two witnesses? And when the corpse bride goes back to being dead, he orders for her to have a proper burial. That explanation even works for Demon in the Tree, minus the part about burial customs. Once again, Ari's problem could have been entirely avoided if he just showed those wedding vows a little more respect. Now, I'm sure that those origins aren't exactly as messed up as some of you were hoping for, but come on. Isn't it nice to learn that, for once, something you love isn't rooted in tragedy? Nowadays, I think we've got to appreciate the rare occasion when that happens, but I do still want to hear your thoughts, so send them to me on Twitter and Instagram. You can reach out to me or the Messed Up Origins team by tagging at John Solo or at Messed Up Origins. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first.